our gracious Heavenly Father, once again we know that when we open up your Bible, your word, this is the message from the living God to us. We thank you for the fact that we have a treasure in your Holy Scripture. We thank you that your word reveals who you are. It's your self-revelation. It reveals the ultimate purpose of mankind, and that is to glorify you by enjoying you forever. We thank you for the fact that you've made that possible as you've revealed in your word by sending your son Jesus into the world to die for sinners so that by but believing in him we can have life and life eternal. We thank you that your word reveals this wonderful gospel message, this good news. And I pray that this morning we would be people who are receptive to your message from your word, from Psalm 91. I pray that we would be people who would reflect deeply upon the things that we learn so that we would, Father, have fear and reverence for you and awe as we apply your word to our lives, that we would be changed people. Do this psalm amongst us this morning, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 91. Psalm 91, we're continuing this great summer series on the Psalms. It's going to take us through the end of August, and Pastor Carnes is going to wrap it up first Sunday of September, and then we're going to start the Gospel of Mark September 9th. So that's where we're heading in the near future. Psalm 91 is our psalm for this morning. We don't know who the author of Psalm 91 was. Some people believe it was Moses. Some people believe it was David, but we don't really know for sure. And we also don't know the historical situation of Psalm 91 but as I read it, there is, there is something that I want you to, to listen for. And uh, it's these three primary movements of the psalmist, whoever he was. In verses 1 and 2, he really speaks generally um, to an audience. But it's him affirming certain truths that we're going to see in the course of the sermon. And then in verses 3 through 13, we see the psalmist addressing himself to an audience. He uses the personal pronoun, singular personal pronoun, you, throughout in verses 3 through 13. He's addressing himself to an audience. And then in verses 14 through 16, as signaled in some of your Bibles by quotation marks, God speaks. So there are these three movements, verses 1 and 2, verses 3 through 13, and then verses 14 through 16. This is the word of the Lord. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For it is he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and bulwark. You will not be afraid of the terror by night or of the arrow that flies by day of the pestilence that stalks in darkness, or of the destruction that lays waste at noon. A thousand may fall at your side, and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not approach you. You will only look on with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. For you have made the Lord my refuge, even the Most High your dwelling place. No evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent. For he will give his angels charge concerning you, to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up in their hands that you do not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread upon the lion and cobra, the young lion and the serpent you will trample down. Because he has loved me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him securely on high because he has known my name. 
He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With a long life, I will satisfy him and let him see my salvation. May the Lord bless the reading of Psalm 91. I want to talk to you this morning about trusting God according to this psalm through thick and thin. And when we say that, we're saying that we need to trust in the Lord no matter what is going on in life. There was a survey done in 2017 that basically uh, surveyed 1,200 plus Americans from all over the United States, citizens across America, with this question, what is your greatest fear as an American? And there were the top 10 and 80 uh, fears, but here are the top 10 in percentages. There was the fear at the top of the list of the corruption in government. 74%. That shouldn't be a shocker to us these days, right? There's the fear of adequate health care at 55%. There's the fear in numbers 3 and 4 of pollution of the environment and pollution of drinking water. About 50% plus of Americans have that fear. There's the fear of financial stability. About half of those Americans really feared the future as far as financially for them. High medical bills was number 6 at 48%. Impending war at 48%. Global warming and climate at 48%. North Korea using weapons was number 9 at 47%. And number 10 was air pollution. In addition, there were other fears that didn't hit the top 10, but were very much things that Americans are very afraid of, by the way. These are very afraid of. Most Americans are afraid of economic collapse, unemployment, terrorism, Identity theft, government restrictions on firearms, racism in our country. There were many fears surrounding the issue of death. Being hit by a drunk driver and dying was a fear. Random mass shootings. There is the death in general. Death of loved ones or people I love becoming seriously ill and dying. Or murder by strangers. And then there were general fears. Some of these are a little bit comical. There's the fear of technology I don't understand. That's the cry of some of you who are older, right? Actually, I feel that way, and I'm 42 years old. The fear of technology, I don't understand. What in the world's going on here, right? Before I get the latest gadget, the next one comes out already. There's the fear of losing my data or photos in case of a disaster. There's the fear of heights. I have a fear of heights. There's the fear of germs. This is a mommy one, right? There's the fear of sharks. There's a fear of public speaking. Some of us can identify with that. There's a fear of walking alone at night. There's a fear of flying. And then down on the list, you, you, this is true, okay? These were Americans that said, there's the fear of clowns. There's the fear of zombies. Fear of ghosts. Fear of animals. And so forth and so forth, the list goes. What do we learn from all of these fears of Americans, besides the fact that, you know, with the latter fears, people are watching too many movies, right? Stop watching movies with zombies for crying out loud. They're not real. But what we learn is that we have a very, very fearful country full of people who are very much afraid of these things and many other things that we ourselves might articulate. And we are dominated by these fears and, and even paralyzed in terms of our actions and our pursuits in life by these fears here. 
These fears rob people's sense of security and and safety and lead to things like anxiety and worry and even uh, lead to depression and isolationism. And the same thing can happen for us as Christians, beloved. We are not immune to some of these fears and many others. When you and I came to know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're a Christian this morning, we didn't all of a sudden become people who are not afraid of anything. The differences between the Christian and the non-Christian is our connection with God through Jesus Christ, right? That we are not alone, we recognize it. And so in relationship with God, what we are trying to do as believers is cultivate a healthy fear of the Lord rather than a fear of the world and everything that could potentially go wrong in our society. That is the battle of the Christian life, to cultivate a healthy fear of God. And by that I mean reverence and awe and admiration and adoration of the Lord that shows itself in the way that we live. But there is a type of unhealthy fear characterized by some of the things that I have described. And when we fear, even as believers, things such as these more than we fear God, then we even as believers can live very anxious lives. Lives that are devoid of joy, stripped of our peace, and even lives because you're so driven and paralyzed by your fears that you don't pursue what God has called you to pursue because of the fact that you are fearful, more fearful of the world and the dangers out in the world rather than having the fear of God be that which you focus upon. I was reading this last week in my reading of Proverbs. I try to read a chapter of Proverbs that coincides with the day of the month. And I read Proverbs chapter 29, verse 25, which says this, The fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. And that verse tells us that the contrast to the fear of man is trust in Yahweh, trust in God. That those who fear God are characterized by a trust in God. Well, this is what Psalm 91 is all about. Trusting in the Lord. Psalm 91 is a psalm of trust. As every other psalm designed poetically in poetic fashion to to move our affection so that we will in our actions and in our pursuits trust in the Lord no matter what, what in light of the fact that He is a great God. And what we see here in Psalm 91 is this. The psalmist affirms the absolute security of the person who trusts in the Lord no matter the danger or adversity that he or she faces. The psalmist affirms the absolute security and peace of the person who trusts in the Lord no matter the danger or adversity. And so the question is, how does he do this? How does he develop this? How does he motivate us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to be people who, who, who locate our security and our peace in the Lord. I told you that there are three different movements in the psalm, and we're going to hang our thoughts, as far as an outline goes, on those three movements. In verses 1 and 2, we see the psalmist's declaration. In verses 3 through 13, we see the psalmist's exhortation. It's as if he launches off into a sermon addressing you, singular, over and over again, his audience, those who are listening, so that they too would trust in the Lord. So we see the psalmist's declaration, the psalmist's exhortation, and then in verses 14 through 16, we see God speaking and we see the Lord's promise that we would be motivated to trusting in the Lord. 
So let's look first of all at the psalmist declaration in verses 1 through 2. Very simply stated, the psalmist declares here, affirms, celebrates the fact that he trusts God. And his declaration of trust in the Lord is based upon a truth that he has learned in his own spiritual journey or experience. If you will notice in verse 1, that he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. These are parallel statements here with a different nuance that express the overall theme of Psalm 91. And what he's saying is this, that the person who, who dwells or permanently resides is the idea there. Dwelling is a per, takes permanent residence in, lives, abides, resides in the presence of God. This person will experience the mighty protection of God. That's what he means by abiding in the shadow of the Almighty. It's that we will experience the protection of God subjectively. We will sense that wonderful presence that God is with us. I love the new home that we just moved into uh, as a family. And one of the things I love about this new home is the backyard. We're about... Between 3 and 5 p.m., you have this one beautiful shadow or shade going, just covering the whole backyard. And I love going back there into our backyard and just enjoying that shade there. Taking off our shoes and sitting on the grass and enjoying something cold together or whatever. Kicking the ball around. And it's enjoyable to be protected in that environment from the rays of the sun, especially in the as hot as it's been, right? Well, that's the idea here. That we, when we dwell in the presence of God, we experience His shadowing presence. We are sheltered by God. We are covered by the Lord. We are protected by the Lord. And notice how he emphasizes this protection in metaphors. He declares his trust in God through the use of various metaphors, if you notice, that illustrate God's protection. He mentions, if you notice, shelter in verse 1. And then in verse 1, also shadow. And then in verses 2, 4, and 9, he talks about the fact that God is his refuge. He calls God, in verse 2, my fortress. Shadow and refuge there picture the security of of a baby bird or chick under the wings of his mother and the safety and security and comfort that that baby chick experiences. While shelter and fortress picture the the safety of a well-guarded city or a military stronghold in ancient times. So there are these beautiful metaphors that he uh, highlights as poetic metaphors to emphasize the protection of God. And these metaphors also point to, to the fact that dependent human beings need the Lord's watchful care and protection. We are not self sufficient, we need the Lord. Notice that he also declares his trust in God through the various names of God. You know, there's a proverb that says that a good name is to be desired. Why? Because a, a name represents who you are, your character, your actions, your priorities. Well, in a greater way, much greater way, in a perfect way, the names of God point to who He is. And notice, He refers to God in verses 1 and 9 as the Most High God. He is Most High, El Elyon. He's highlighting God's sovereignty and power over all of His creation and all of His creatures by saying He is the Most High God. He calls Him Almighty, if you notice in verse 1. El Shaddai. The fact that God is infinite in power. He is omnipotent, all-powerful. He is the invincible God who has no limitations because He's all-powerful. There is nothing that God cannot do. That is what El Shaddai, Almighty, points to. 
He mentions him, or he calls him Lord. Lord in all caps in verses 2 and 9. That is Yahweh. God's personal name in all caps, Lord. It's the most common name in the Old Testament for God. Here's some over 6,800 times in the Old Testament. And Yahweh emphasizes God, listen, as the eternal, unchanging, self-existent, and self-sufficient God. The God who has always been, has no beginning and no end, and who needs no one. He is dependent, unlike every human being, upon no one. Lord Yahweh. He refers to Him as my God in verse 2. Elohim, the supreme God who is the creator of the universe. Beloved, the point with all of these names of God, and he does it intentionally as he's writing under the inspiration of the Spirit, is that the psalmist knows his God. There is substance that supports his trust in God's protection, as highlighted by the names of God that he refers to here, which leads him to Be determined to place his confidence in God. Look at verse 2. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. This is very personal. Very personal. You know, I love talking to people who, who talk about God this way. Who talk about God as if he is their God. My Jesus. My Lord. I was talking to a brother the other day and we were sharing burdens and prayer requests. He's also a pastor in another church. And one of the things that stood out to me is this brother constantly referring to God as my Lord. I know that my Lord Jesus will sustain you as he has sustained me. And I know my Lord Jesus is going to comfort me and he's going to be an encouragement to me. Everything was my, 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 very personal. And beloved, listen, such a statement and such a way of talking and such a perspective is the fruit of an ongoing living relationship with God, isn't it? Only those who have a relationship with God can identify with what the psalmist is saying here as he refers to God as my refuge and my fortress. He's my God in whom I trust. He has a living, active relationship with the Lord. Maybe you've attended church for a long time. Maybe you've been around Christians in various contexts and maybe in various churches. Maybe you even served at a high capacity in the church. Maybe you've grown up in the church. You've been raised in a Christian home or been around the church as a, as a young child or teen or now college student or whatever or young person. Maybe you made some profession of faith at some point in your life. But I want to ask you this morning, do you identify with this type of terminology? Because you yourself personally have a relationship with God. And thus you can say, I trust in God. Can you identify with this? Because it's very possible that you've been around Christianity all of your life. And yet you don't have a saving relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, right? You haven't recognized your need as a sinner in the hands of an angry God to trust in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ on your behalf that you might be forgiven and that you might be reconciled to God, your maker. Listen, Jesus didn't just come to earth to deliver people and rescue people from hell. You understand? That is a result of his atoning work. Jesus, the fundamental problem that Jesus came to deal with on this earth is a relational problem between us and God. And that problem is sin. Jesus went to the cross to deal with sin. 
to pay the debt that we could never pay on the cross, to take upon the Father's wrath on our behalf for our sins in our place. And what does He require of us that we would look upon that sacrifice and say, oh, you are worthy of my allegiance that I would follow you all of my life. I turn from my sins. I bow to the King of the universe and I trust in that atoning sacrifice. And you enter then, beloved, into a saving relationship with God who is now your Father. You can cry out and say, Abba, Father. Do you have a relationship with the Lord this morning? Otherwise, the way that the psalmist speaks here, you can't identify with this. It's foreign to you. Because you haven't experientially, subjectively been around the Lord in His presence and dwelt this way and experienced His fellowship and His communion, you see. And for us who are Christians, trusting God is a daily struggle, isn't it? Can I get an amen? Amen. It's a fight daily, moment by moment, situation by situation, to trust God in the greatest, greatest battle, is the greatest battle of the Christian. To trust in the Lord. Each day we struggle to live in the light of who God is. Each day we struggle to remember that He's faithful when we are not. This is why put your time with the Lord in His Word and in prayer and perspective every single day. You are not just clocking in and out of, 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 of that time because of the fact that you are trying to gain merit before God somehow. You're trying to look like a good little Christian. You go to the Word of God in prayer and you go, or in prayer and you go to the Word of God and you meditate upon the Scriptures. Why? Because you are spending time with someone that you have a relationship with, right? That's why you spend time with Him in His presence. And then as we go through our day, we strive to keep Him at the center of our thoughts, to reflect upon Him, to meditate upon Him. Listen, beloved, what this psalm teaches us is that the more that we dwell and live in the presence of God, the more that we are fueled to entrust ourselves to His loving and gracious hand. And this is why you need to prioritize time with God every single day, not as a duty, but as a delight of your soul. Because you long for God, the lover of your soul, right? And so you should pursue Him. This is why you shouldn't treat your time with God like you're visiting a motel every single day. What do we do when we visit a motel? We're just stopping by periodically to be refreshed here temporarily, and then we're going to go back to our old life. Don't treat your time with the Lord like a motel, like visiting a motel. Don't treat your time with God like visiting a resort, or you just stop at this resort and you stay there for a time to be served and pampered and have your, eat, your needs met. And you don't go there when there are hard times, right? To go to the presence of the Lord. You're picky and choosy about when you go and spend time with the Lord. Don't treat your time with the Lord that way. Don't treat your time with the Lord like a retreat center. Where I only go to God only when I'm overwhelmed by life. But when there are struggles and afflictions in my life, I run away from God because I don't want Him to deal with my problems and expose my own sin. No, beloved. God must be our dwelling place, our habitation. His presence must be our home address. Right? Our dwelling place, our home address. He is everything. So the psalmist is declaring here, first of all, I have learned that in God's presence is where I find security. But then the psalmist transitions in verses 3 through 13 to essentially say, I want the same sense of security for you 
And throughout verses 3 through 13, there is the, there's this the, the, uh, personal pronoun, singular personal pronoun, you, you, you. As if to say, each of you personally, singular, need to trust in the Lord the way that I trust in the Lord. And so he launches into a somewhat of a sermon here in verses 3 through 13. So we see the psalmist's exhortation here in these verses. And what we see in these verses, of course, is that adversity and trouble are our reality. The reason why it's so hard to trust in God's protection is because of the fact that life isn't easy even for us as, as believers. And we have that expectation. We've been looking at the, at the reality of adversity and trouble and trials so much working through these psalms, right? You know, there's a, there are those out there who use this particular psalm and many other texts to support the idea that what, it's all about wealth, health, and prosperity. And you are guaranteed as a believer, as a follower of Christ, a trouble-free life. If you have only faith, it will happen for you. Nothing could be farther from the truth, beloved. Amen? We've experienced that even as believers. The wealth, health, and prosperity gospel, the word of faith movement is an abomination, you understand. Because it doesn't embrace suffering as something good from the Lord. That even when we don't understand everything that takes place, we know that God is sovereign and has a purpose for everything that we go through as believers, right? Otherwise, He is not sovereign. Nowhere in these verses does it say we will not experience adversity or trouble. Notice that his exhortation here is not naive. Note the variety of dangers that the psalmist highlights that a typical traveling Jewish pilgrim or, or a common Jewish citizen might experience in those days. Just note with me some of these dangers. Look at verse 3. The snare of the trapper and the deadly pestilence. That might refer to an enemy there. The snare of the trapper, an enemy who is preying upon your life. Or in that day and age, maybe a deadly disease that would come upon a pilgrim or a Jewish citizen of some sort. Look at verse 5. There's the terror by night, the arrow that flies by day. Maybe there are enemies who are pursuing this psalmist and he remembers the terror by night. Or just laying on his bed at night and just being afraid where his fears became monsters. And the arrow that flies by day. Normally arrows are launched by people, right? Fearing his enemies. It says God will protect you from those. Verse 6, the pestilence that stalks in darkness, the destruction that lays waste at noon. Notice darkness and at noon. All day there are potential dangers. Verse 7, a thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not approach you. He's probably talking here about being in battle, be referring to war where many are trying to kill you and that is the objective to take you out. Verses 11, 12, and 13, he mentions stones and lions and cobras and snakes. All of these dangers, beloved, highlight the variety of of physical, spiritual, or even military adversity that a traveling Jewish pilgrim or common Jewish citizen might experience during the course of his life. He said, well, I don't experience some of those things. True. We may not experience some of the same exact dangers or adversity here, but what kinds of things do we experience? Health issues, sickness, unexpected death, physical infirmities, even impending death, opposition, attacks by people, loss of a job, financial strains. All of those things are things that, that are become dangers because of the way that we might not respond to those things favorably looking upon God in dependence. 
So we experience some of these things, and we have a taste of that in our own life. So his exhortation here is not naive. He says there are many, many dangers. But if these are great, God is greater. Notice that his exhortation is not naive, but it is, it is grounded. He says we, you have a great God who is engaged, who is not aloof. He's not indifferent. He is not passive about the things that you're going through. Notice the psalmist reassures his readers that God will protect his people no matter what form adversity may take. Look at verse 3. Literally, in verse 3, it is this, Surely He delivers you from the snare of the trapper. It's emphatic. He delivers you. Verse 4, He will cover you with His pinions. He meaning God. And under His, God's wings, you may seek refuge. Again, the picture there is of a frail, vulnerable, weak little bird under the, the refuge of His mother. End of verse 4, His faithfulness is a shield and a bulwark. You can take refuge in God. His faithfulness there points to the fact that He's true, that He's committed His word that He has promised to protect you. He will bring it to pass no matter what takes place. His faithfulness is a shield and a bulwark. Verse 5, God God will be with you so that you will not be afraid. You will not be afraid of the terror by night or of the arrow that flies by day. Verse 7, God will protect you in the battle. He's going to do justice before your very eyes. Israel literally experienced that. There were times when God fought for them, right? And won the physical war on their behalf. They actually saw this. And then he does something very interesting and beautiful in verse 9. Notice what it says there. For you have made the Lord my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place, says the New American Standard. You know, literally what, the, what it says there in verse 9, the first line says, For you, O Lord, are my refuge. It's as if in the middle of this sermon, where he is addressing himself to the audience, exhorting them to trust God and lean upon his protection, he pauses to remind himself again that he himself or that the Lord is his refuge yet again. He pauses in the middle of this thing and affirms his own trust in the Lord. And then, look at the latter half of verse 9. You have made the Most High your dwelling place. He goes back to them again. I love that, how you could do that in poetry. Where in the middle of this, he is addressing himself to his audience, but he pauses to reaffirm his own trust in the Lord. God will protect you is what the psalmist is saying here again and again. Verse 11, note there. He will give His angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up on their, in their hands that you do not strike your foot against the stone. You will tread upon the lion and cobra, the young lion and the serpent you will trample down. He's saying even His angels, ministering spirits, will come to aid you. There is a testimony in the believer's Bible commentary where the commentator William MacDonald begins his comments on Psalm 91 by telling of a five-year-old boy who was dying of dysphoria diphtheria in 1922. As his mother turned her back so she could not see her little boy take his last breath, her brother-in-law knocked at the door and he said, I've come just to tell you that you don't have to worry about the child. He is going to recover, and God is going to save his soul. He then went on to explain that the Lord had given him this assurance as he had read and meditated upon Psalm 91. Well, here's the key. 
McDonald, the author of the commentary, the guy who was telling this story, was that dying boy. God spared his life. And not only did God spare his life, but 13 years later, God saved this uh, Bible commentator, William McDonald. So that for decades, God used him to preach the gospel and to write about the gospel and to write great literature for us to be edified by. And McDonald, through the rest of his life, labeled Psalm 91 as my psalm. It's my psalm in light of what had happened to him, that God had sustained him through that terrible sickness as a kid. You know, I think that sometimes we get afraid of stories like these, and we begin to wonder, well, I don't know if that's true. Are you sure that's what happened? I think we, we tend to respond that way because we don't want to attribute to God some weird, mystical kind of thing that he's done. That's not typically the way that he works, we say. We don't want to do that. But we've got to remember, beloved, that God does heal, doesn't he? God does miracles today, and the greatest miracle is conversion, the new birth, what you heard up there happen and that it was testified about. That is the greatest miracle. God does miracles. It's really not the way that these televangelists, these false teachers, these so-called sophisticated yuppies on national television, jokesters who talk about the Lord in certain ways and talk about these miracles that are always, by the way, done through them as you send them your money, right? I'm not talking about that kind of miracle. But God does do miracles. He does work in the lives of, of His people. The story is told of the 91st Brigade during World War I who engaged this particular group in three of the most bloodiest battles. And this particular brigade, the 91st Brigade, it said that they would recite Psalm 91 daily before they went out to battle. And I don't know how true the story is, but they've gone on to write about the fact that other units suffered 90% plus casualties in many of these battles, but the 91st Brigade um, was fully supported and never suffered any casualties during those wars. Now listen, I don't know. That's why it's been called the Soldier's Psalm, because so many soldiers will recite this psalm and meditate upon it and, and memorize it because of the fact that it speaks so much of God's protection. Beloved, listen, God is about doing those miracles, isn't He? He is. Now, is it the case, then, that nothing bad will ever happen? That God is obligated to protect and keep us from all suffering? After all, I mean, doesn't verse 10 say that no evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent or dwelling? Well, we know that's not the case, right? He's not saying that bad things from our perspective won't happen or that we won't experience troubles. We've seen in this psalm over and over again that he can't mean that we will never experience trials because he's talked about some of the adversity that these that his audience suffers and that he suffered himself in the midst of his battle to trust in the Lord. So he can't be saying that. What he's saying is that in the midst of your trials and your troubles, and your adversity, you can rest assured that if you are trusting in the Lord, He will always be with you, right? He will sustain you. All you have to do is read church history. Over at the Shepherds Conference, I heard from a brother that I've known for a long time, the testimony of a couple of brothers who had just been beaten in Southeast Asia for their faith. And it took the authorities um, intervening uh, to uh, preserve the life of these guys. 
We know that such things happen in our, in our lifetime. And we hear uh, the stories of the martyrs over, the, 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 uh, over church history of persecution of believers. Evil happens, beloved. It takes place. And we can read about Joseph and the evil that his brothers did to him. But ultimately, God had a purpose for it, didn't he? For good, for his people. And Moses and the opposition that he experienced. And what about righteous Job? And, and Paul, who was a humble man, experiencing persecutions and opposition. He writes about this in Second Corinthians. All the ways that Paul suffered. All of these individuals, beloved, including Jesus, didn't experience suffering because they had done something wrong. So we know that that's not what he means. In Hebrews chapter 11, verses 35 through 40. In the famous chapter, Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, we read about our brethren who by faith, the writer of Hebrews says, were people who, excuse me, experienced torture and mockings and ridicule and were scourged and were stoned and were gruesomely killed. They wandered in deserts, in holes, in mountains. By faith, he says, over and over again, they endured such sufferings, beloved. They endured them. They went through them. The evil that had been committed against them. He says in verse 11 that God's angels will protect you. We're not, we don't have the time to go into a full-blown theology of, an, of angels, angelology, maybe at a future time. But it does say in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, that angels are God's ministering spirits sent out to render service for those who will inherit eternal life. We know that God's angels do His bidding. They are His messengers to serve His purposes. We know that. Verses 11 and 12 may sound somewhat familiar to you, and probably because you are remembering the temptation. Matthew chapter 4 and Luke 4. You may remember these, these verses being quoted at the temptation by Satan trying to get Jesus to put God's protection to the test so that Jesus ultimately wouldn't go to the cross. He would have obeyed Satan rather than the Lord. He will give his angels charge concerning you, to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up in their hands that you do not strike your foot against a stone. Satan, however, in Luke 4 and Mark, or in Matthew chapter 4, conveniently left in all your ways in verse 11 out. And he conveniently, of course, as Satan does, twisted scripture and left verse 13 out where it talks about the fact that he would ultimately have victory over the serpent. What does, Jesus, what does Satan say to Jesus in Matthew 4 and Luke chapter 4? And I'm improvising here. Jesus, throw yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple after a God. Oh, God will protect you. Don't you remember Psalm 91 verses 11 and 12? He will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you. Lest you bear, uh, they will bear you up in their hands that you do not strike your foot against a stone. God will protect you, Jesus. Satan was telling Jesus this as if to say, God guaranteed your protection. See if he meant it. And we know what would have happened. If Jesus would have obeyed Satan, he would have sinned against God, right? He would have sinned against God. He would have committed idolatry by following after the law of Satan rather than the word of God. Jesus sees right through Satan's trap and twisting of Scripture. And Jesus says, have you not read Deuteronomy 6.16? You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus knew the will of God that he was to go through this testing and not find an easy way out and ultimately suffer at the cross. And who was ministering to Jesus during that whole time? 
Angels were ministering to Jesus. Angels were. Beloved, at the temptation, Jesus overcame Satan by trusting in God's protection in the midst of his suffering, all the while being ministered to by angels. He didn't take the easy way out. Jesus could have taken this passage in his own life to mean, yeah, Satan, you're right. God hasn't called me to suffer that way. Surely he will protect me. And he would have presumed upon God's protection, right? And not gone to the cross. But he did. He obeyed the Lord and he went to the cross to pay for sins. That was the greater purpose of Jesus' obedience. And beloved, just like the Lord Jesus, we must always keep in mind that God, who is infinitely wise and good, has a purpose for everything that we go through, right? Sometimes it's not his will that we would exit certain situations or adversity or troubles. He wants us to go through it and he's got a purpose and he wants us to trust in his protection even in the midst of that suffering that we might experience. Well, as the psalmist rejoices in the absolute security that we experience when we trust in the Lord's protection, no matter what danger or adversity we face, he declares, testifies his own trust. He exhorts his readers to trust God. But thirdly, notice in verses 14 through 16, last but not least, we hear God speak. And this is the Lord's promise here in verses 14 through 16. God is speaking here. Most versions have have verses 14 through 16 in quotations signifying the fact that God is speaking here. And it's almost as if to say, psalmist, step aside. I can say this better. Direct quotation from the Lord. And here we have God's promises to those who trust Him. And I, know, I want you to notice a couple of things. There is a condition for being the recipients of these promises. These promises in verses 14 through 16, in other words, are not for everyone. Notice in verse 14, because He has what? Loved me. Because He has loved me, therefore I will deliver Him. I will set Him securely on high because He has what? known my name. Verse 15, he will call upon me and I will answer him. Notice he has loved me. He has known me. He has called upon my name. Here it is. The protection promised in Psalm 91 is not for everyone, beloved. It's for those who are devoted to God, who love God, who know God, who call upon the name of the Lord in an ongoing relationship with him. Do you Love God this morning. Do you know God in a saving relationship? Do you call upon His name? I'm not talking about a past profession of faith that has had no implications and no ramifications, application for the way that you've lived since. I'm talking about a saving relationship with the Lord. You call upon His name daily. And even in the midst of your adversity, you are constantly seeking to live God-dependent. Is that you this morning? Is that you? And if it is, these promises apply to you. You have a relationship with the Lord. Notice also there's a second observation on this. My wife and I were reflecting on this psalm the other day, a few days ago. And she noted how it's so impactful that God translates trust in this psalm, in His protection, as love for Him. As knowing Him. As calling upon Him. In other words, the more that we know and we love God, the more that we will trust Him, that He is our gracious and good Heavenly Father, right? When you trust your physical father, 
or you know him rather, you know his character, you know that he loves you, there is trust that follows, right? Some of you know my testimony. I grew up in a pretty abusive home as a little boy. I lived with a stepfather and my biological mom, and my stepfather was very abusive, verbally abusive and physically abusive, devastatingly abusive physically, oftentimes leaving my mom half dead on the ground. And all of that culminated in him killing my mom. But I remember prior to that happening, um, prior to him killing her, that my mom had my third sibling, um, my little sister. And she went to the, to the doctor. I must have been no, much old, not, no older than seven years old. And I remember just missing my mom so much as I spent time with my stepfather. And he actually took me to visit my mom. And I was able to see her from a distance as she waved at me from the third floor of this hospital clinic. And just waved at me. I couldn't go in for some reason. I think she had had a C-section or, or something. And I remember him allowing me to see her from outside of this building. And of course I missed her. I wanted to be in her presence. I didn't want to be around him. He, he didn't physically uh, abuse me. He used to abuse my mom that way, but he didn't do that for me. But I still didn't want to be around him. I wanted her back. And I remember asking him, I said, hey, are we going to come back and see her again? And he says, I will bring you back. Do you trust me? Hmm. I got to be honest with you. I didn't trust him. Why? I knew him. I knew the type of man he was. He didn't keep his word. He was abusive, verbally and physically. His track record was horrible. He was an adulterer, and on and on the list went. He was a violent man. I knew him. I knew his character, and I did not love him. Therefore, I did not trust him. Oh, beloved, I can't tell you how often in my life the sin of mistrust has taken place in my life and shape because of those of that upbringing. And yet, as, as no matter what kind of background you have, as a believer, as somebody who calls God your heavenly Father by faith in Jesus Christ, you must strip yourself by the power and grace of God from those experiences and remember that your heavenly Father loves you and He can be trusted, right? That where physical fathers fail, and all of us do as physical fathers, some greater than others, God will never, ever, ever fail you. He never will. And His promises are true. And you can be secure in those promises. And so what does our loving, good, heavenly Father promise those who love Him, who, who know Him, and who trust Him? Look at very briefly in these verses. God will rescue us in verse 14. I will deliver Him. Verse 15, I will rescue him. Objection? No, he doesn't, Pastor. Not all the time. Well, are your ways higher than his ways? Are you infinite in wisdom? Do you know the past and the future perfectly as God does? Oh, beloved, the issue is not that God doesn't rescue us. It's that He doesn't do so in our timing or in the way that we feel He should rescue us, right? Notice also in verse 15, He will answer us, implying that we will come to Him in prayer. We will call upon Him. Objection? Not always, Pastor. He doesn't always answer me in my adversity or my troubles. Yes, He does. Sometimes the answer is a straight-up no. Yes. Straight-up no. And we don't like it. We don't like the way that God answers, or we want Him to answer in our timing, in our manner. 
Sometimes the answer is yes, exuberantly, to our requests, or even to our relief from certain suffering. And other times the issue is linger there, or the answer is linger there. Wait. I'm trying to teach you some things. And that is my answer. I'm doing something greater in your life, something for your good. He answers, beloved. Notice verse 15, the last part of verse 15. He will honor us, though the circumstances of our lives may bring us low and cause us pain. God will one day lift us up. Look at the second line of verse 15. I will be with him in trouble or in distress. God says, you know what I promise you? I will be with you no matter what you go through. Beloved, God is not just for us in Jesus Christ. He is with us because we're in Jesus Christ. Amen? He's always with us. We are not alone. Psalm 34, verse 18. Yahweh is near to the brokenhearted and save those who are crushed in spirit. Psalm 145, verse 18. Yahweh is near to all who call upon Him, to all who call upon Him in truth. He is there with us. One of the wonderful things that I love about visiting saints who are sick is their amazing perspective in the midst of their sickness. If you haven't had an opportunity to do that, talk to Dale Van Trees and Esther and ask them about being a part of visitation on Sunday afternoons. Because over and over again, what I have found is these brethren being comforted in the fact that they are not alone. That in the midst of of laying there, pondering what God is doing in their lives, they feel an amazing sense, a marvelous sense of the presence of God. And oftentimes that is through God's people, right? They're not alone. God does not leave us alone, beloved, in our suffering He rescues us. He answers us. He honors us. He's with us. Notice verse 16. With a long life, I will satisfy him. Doesn't mean that everybody will have a long life, even if you are faithful, right? We have multiple examples of people that were faithful, not having long long lives. But generally in the Old Testament, it's a truism, a general, uh, a truth that is generally, generally comes to pass that people who are faithful will have a long life, though that is not a guarantee. And the Lord in His timing takes certain saints before they maybe expected it, right? With a long life I will satisfy Him. And notice at the latter half of verse 16, and let Him see my salvation. This could refer in the experience of the psalmist or could have happened that he experienced salvation in the sense of relief from his suffering, being able to get out of certain trials eventually. And certainly we experience salvation in that sense, rescue in that sense from the Lord. But I think, beloved, this is ultimate salvation, isn't it? Psalm, Psalm that we looked at last week, Psalm 73, talked about this aspect of being with God forever, experiencing life forever. And again, something that the Psalms, we must do with every single Psalm is put them within the greater framework of what Jesus Christ has accomplished on the cross, right? If you are in Christ Jesus, there is nothing, nothing, nothing in this life that can ever separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Nothing can touch the Christian. Even in the worst case scenario, if your life was taken from you on this earth, your soul would be preserved and one day you would be given a new body in the new heavens and the new earth, right? Much better than the one you have right now. Yes. 
These psalmists celebrate the ultimate salvation of God and they might not have understood all of the intricacies of the coming future Messiah who would come and what he would accomplish and all of that. But ultimately, beloved, now as we have the whole revelation of God, we know that we need to put these psalms within the greater context of the cross of Jesus Christ who conquered sin and death on the cross so that we could be with God forever and ever enjoying him. No more sin, no more suffering, no more pain. Amen? It's such a beautiful thing to remember, especially during these times that are difficult in our world. We just set our eyes on the greater city. And so these Psalms cause us to look for the greater city if we are Christians. Jesus said not to fear him who kills body, but him who can kill both body and soul in hell. Matthew chapter 10 verses 26 to 30. He told John not to be afraid of the future, for he himself held in his hands the keys to life and death in Revelation chapter 1. Hope in me, no matter what happens, John. Paul reminds us in Romans 8 verses 37 through 39 that nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know what these... Those passages and many others tell me, beloved, once again, that I need to make sure that I am in Christ. That I am saved. For if I'm in Christ and I'm secure and safe in the arms of God, have you trusted in the Lord Jesus as your Savior this morning? Don't leave today without making things right with God. Deal with your your broken relationship with the Lord. God has made the first step. What did He do? He sent Jesus to the cross to die for sinners, right? Showing His great love. Showing His great compassion. His great mercy for a world who rejects Him. From the womb, the wicked are estranged from the womb. We come out sinners. Nobody is born a believer. We are wicked and depraved. And we live our whole lives manifesting that in our attitudes and in our actions and in our priorities. That they're not for the glory of God. And they're not for the purpose of enjoying Him, but worshiping ourselves. Have you come to recognize that without Christ, you are destined to receive the consequences of your sin and rebellion against God? Your only hope is to trust in Jesus Christ, right? He's the only hope. The psalmist affirms here the experience of absolute security for the person who places their complete trust in God in the midst of all of his troubles and adversity. Let me ask you as we conclude, who or in what are you trusting in this morning? What are you basing your security upon? Is it God, the God of the Bible? Or other things, right? What kinds of things do we look for security in? We look for security in what we own, especially as Americans, our bank accounts, our financial success, a good job that seems to be secure, a great career. We put our trust and security in good health and having an upstanding family, on our intellect, on our abilities, on and on the list goes, beloved. We locate our security upon those things. And we feel safe when we have those things. But then when we are stripped of those things, or those things are not going as we expected, what happens? Loss of joy. Loss of a sense of peace. Not being optimistic about life. Being hopeful because of Christ Jesus. Just being negative and complaining, right? 
That's what happens to us when we, when our identity is, is connected to those things, our sense of significance. Because when those things go away, we don't trust God anymore. But what do we learn from Psalm 91? Psalm 91 teaches us that when you and I are daily, continually striving to live in the presence of God, keeping God at the center of our lives, this is where lasting and continual security comes from. Amen? We will experience the protection of the Lord. Proverbs 3 verse 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean upon your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your paths straight. May we be people who trust in the Lord, beloved. Amen? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, Oh Lord, help us to be people who, in application of this great psalm, and all of these psalms that we've been looking at, that no matter how we feel, no matter what our circumstances are like, no matter what things have not transpired as we expected them, whether personally, familially, as a church, out in society, that, Father, we would be people who trust in You, the unchanging One, the One who is always stable, always constant in terms of who You are. Father, help us to be people who trust in You and help us to be people who, Lord, do that so that we might be a testimony to those who are watching us in our neighborhoods and in our homes and in our jobs, out shopping, out on the freeway, out on the roads, so that, Father, we would exemplify Christ in some way, shape, or form to those individuals, that they might ask, what is it that we have different, Lord? And we might be able to say, we trust in the Lord always. We lean not upon our own understanding. Father, help us to have that kind of heart and that kind of testimony individually and collectively as a church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.